welcome to the Postmodern Art Podcast, a podcast dedicated to giving artists who are wanting the world over the platform they deserve. I'm your host, Nathan Raglan, and if you're listening to this to the date it releases, I sincerely hope that, at least in America, you had a very lovely Thanksgiving, spending good quality time with your family. If you're just, you know, anywhere but the U.S., I hope you have a fantastic Thursday. But now as we get to the Black Friday that it is today, well, I figured one of the hot topic items would be some of the newest video games, and... Well, for today's guest, I think he might know a thing or two about some of the hottest video games out there. Or at least, some of the icons of gaming. Today's guest is Charles Zimbillis, a legendary character designer best known for his work with Jack and Daxter, Crash Bandicoot, and Spyro the Dragon, among others, as well as being the founder of the Animation Academy in Burbank, California. Charles is someone that I quickly discovered had a major hand in some of the biggest properties that we have today. I mean, the fact that we just had a huge celebration for Spyro the Dragon for 25 years out there, that alone should really let you know how important Charles' works is. So I wanted to make sure to bring him on, and knowing how big of a fan my producer Aiden Arts is, I couldn't help but bring him on as well. I mean, come on, this was a match made in heaven, regardless. Just a couple bits of heads up before we actually do get into the episode. I'm going to apologize if the audio quality sounds a bit weird. Um, normally I record these through Discord, but Discord was not playing nice with us when we were recording this, so we instead went to Zoom. Uh, my mic quality is going to be just a little bit different, but it shouldn't take away from the overall conversation. It was still a fantastic conversation, as you can probably tell with how long this episode is. And I sincerely hope you guys enjoy such insightful thoughts that Charles does have to give. Because this was seriously one of the most in-depth conversations I've had with a guest about the years of experience he has had. I, I sincerely hope that's something that you guys take personal, close to heart as you listen to it. And of course, if you enjoyed Charles and want to support him, make sure you check him out in the links down in the description below, especially for the Animation Academy. The stuff that he's doing there is absolutely outstanding, and if you guys are looking to get into the animation industry yourself, maybe take an opportunity to see if the Animation Academy is something you could look into. Speaking of animation, if you want to support some of the future of animation... Maybe you should consider checking out the Indiegogo for The Evil Little Thing. My kosher runner of the podcast, Tipsy J Hart, is putting together a fantastic independent animated adult horror comedy show that you guys should absolutely love and support today. Link to that Indiegogo will be in the description below. But now, without further ado, please enjoy the Postmodern Art Podcast. Okay, Charles, before we really get going, I must ask the icebreaker question of the podcast, if I may. Let's say you get to go to a desert island on your own accord. It's just you, along with your thoughts. You get to kick back, relax, breathe. get to truly enjoy yourself for a little bit. With accommodations, you're not stranded on an island. It's like a little personal Airbnb hotel paradise place, more than anything else. To help make sure you don't go completely insane on your little personal paradise, you can bring Mm -hmm. one piece of media or one piece of art with you to help whatever kind of headspace you want on this island. If given this opportunity, what would that one piece be? I will tell you that the very first thing that popped in my head, I don't know why, but the very first thing that popped in my head was uh, uh, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. 
Ooh, okay. Okay. His, his album. That was that popped in my head. I don't know why. So I've just that's my that's my visceral response right there was to have Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I mean, to be fair, that is a really good album to like pick and like have with like a good mood with wherever setting you're in, you know? Right, right. Uh, as far as art is concerned, um, man, that's a tough one. Uh, I would have to look at something that would be inspiring to me. Okay. You know? And uh, something that would be inspiring. Um, hmm. I really can't. You caught me with that. I, mean, I, I was gonna say. I mean, to be. I mean, to be fair. Whenever you said like Marvin Gaye's, let's get it on. I mean, I consider that art. So you could consider that as like the the two in one answer. <laughs> no, let, let's get it on. It's from a different album. This, oh, was, uh, oh, this was from 1971. It was oh, his. Sorry, what's oh, oh okay? What, what's going on? It's what's yeah. going on. Marvin Gaye. Like what's going on? You know, mercy, mercy, mm-hmm. all that stuff. It was. Uh, it was really. Uh, it was really prophetic. It was something prophetic because everything that he was talking about in many ways actually, you know, came about. He talks about environmental issues. He talks about, you know, uh, he has concern for the children. Uh, it was a time of, of really great change that was happening uh, in many areas of uh, society. And uh, plus the music is just uh, really good to listen to, you know? So, oh, absolutely. you know, uh, but that would be, that would be, that's what popped into my head. So, you know, okay. As far as art is concerned, it would have to be something I think from the great masters. Okay. I just don't know what. You know, I just don't know what. I mean, to be I would have to enough. say I would have to say one of the great experiences of my life was I was at the Sestine Chapel. Okay. And um, the everybody who was there at the time at the Sestine Chapel were. All, all, for some reason, they were all like up close to the walls, and the only open area where I wasn't like, with where I could, you know, like reach, spread my arms out and not really can come in t- contact with anybody was right in the middle, and it was where God is touching the hand, the, you know, just about to touch the finger of Adam. Right. And I was, it was right above me, and I was looking up, and I was like one of these, like, uh, you know, like this is my moment. This is it was this is my moment in time and space at this very place. And I sat there, I stood there for about 20 minutes, just soaking it in. So I would have to say maybe that would be um, something that I would like to have with me because it reminds it reminds me of that, of that particular moment, okay? So Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, his album, and uh, the center of the Sestine Chapel where God is creating Adam. So there you go. That, that I just got to say that experience you talk about was so beautiful and so poetic. Although I think it'd be funny to try to see how we could get the center of Sistine Chapel away from the Sistine Chapel and with you on this island. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you something I learned about that. Oh. And that's because there was a big controversy going on in the 80s with the Sistine Chapel because okay. they wanted to clean it. Okay. And they thought, they thought that Michelangelo, Michelangelo at that time, when he did it, purposely put on some sort of like a patina on it, like a tint on it to give it like a, like a like more earth tone, mm-hmm. more earth tone to the colors. But when, and when actually it was just layers of, you know, like grime and soot and all that kind of stuff that had built, built up over the centuries. And when they did clean it off, it was, they found that he was, it, it exploded with color. 
this absolutely vibrant color. Mm -hmm. And I learned that when I was at the Sestine Chapel, and then as a result of that, I was going through the Vatican Museum, was that that's what he intended to do. Because the Sestine Chapel was the beginning, it was the beginning of a trend. And I realized that when I was going through these other areas of the, of the, of the museum, that there were paintings on the ceilings everywhere. You know, there was just every, and they were all you know, like post-Sestine Chapel. And they were all okay. full of color. So if Michelangelo was putting some sort of a, like a, a, a grayed down tent on the Sestine Chapel, it would have been, it would have, we would have seen it in subsequent works that other people were doing. And I didn't see that at all. So okay. what I learned from that was that he was actually, it was actually, he, he, he painted it with, with really, really bright colors and that it wasn't intentional that he put down, that he put a tint over that. So that was a consequence, one of the things that I learned as a result of going to the Sestine Chapel. So it's amazing that I didn't even realize that, but you learn something every day, right? <laughs> yeah. But with that, I cannot think of a better way to start the postmodern art podcast. Welcome, everyone. I am your host, Nathan Ragland. Uh, I am also not the only host for today. Aiden, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Hello, I am Aiden. I was a previous guest, now a producer on the postmodern art podcast. And I am very excited to be here. I have been nervous <laughs> about this for weeks. <laughs> well, let's talk about why we are getting nervous. But before, just a little housekeeping, obviously, you know, uh, feel free to like, share, subscribe, follow whatever audio streaming platform you prefer. Um, the Indiegogo for the evil little thing is still going on. Please check the link in the description below. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, wherever on social media, at Postmod Art Pod for future updates and guest announcements, including today's guest. <clears throat> he is a legendary character designer, best known for his work with Jack and Daxter, Crash Bandicoot, and Spyro the Dragon, as well as the founder of the Animation Academy in Burbank, California, influencing animators of today and tomorrow. Majestic beast and all, uh, majestic beard and all i should say welcome to the podcast charles zambillas thank you thank you and i appreciate that you said i appreciate that you uh pronounced my my last name correctly so. I, I i was i was glad yeah. that i decided to do a little research beforehand and go mm -hmm. through old videos of the animation academy to where you clearly remembered your last you clearly said your last name because literally the week leading up to this i was debating like is it zambillas or is it zambias like i needed to make sure so i i did my research and i realized it's zambillas but Thanks. There you go. Um, how are you doing today, Charles? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Well, thank well. you. I, oh, we're doing wonderful. Um, I mean, I cannot tell you enough how excited me and Aiden were to have you on this podcast. Obviously, like I said before, although I don't know if that audio is included, but the influence you kind of had on us in more than one way and kind of the influence that you have in the industry is absolutely outstanding. And I wanted to make sure to, to give that little spotlight to you more than anything else. Thank but you. Before really divulging to the stuff you're doing then and now, let's go back a little bit further. I want to know more or less the origin story of Charles. What got you interested in art and animation and stuff in the first place? Well, it started very early in my life. And there were certain, there were some things, my, my life was, um, I was very fortunate because I had a very happy childhood. Okay. Uh, my childhood was happy. And a big part of that was because of, I think, um, what was happening culturally mm -hmm. in America. Because uh, um, I was, my first exposure to animation, of course, was on TV. And um, I remember that the local TV station 
where I was growing up, uh, at six o'clock every evening, played uh, every time for six at six o'clock at night. They always played uh, uh, cartoons, and everybody everybody in the neighborhood stopped stopped. We stopped what we we're doing. We all went home, or you know, we all just everybody. Uh, I remember like a large group of kids and the lip sitting on the living room of my home, and we would watch on Monday nights. It would be uh, Huckleberry Hound. Yes. On Tuesday nights it would be Yogi Bear. On Wednesdays and Fridays, it would be Rocky and Bullwinkle. And on Thursdays, it would be Woody Woodpecker. And uh, I was just enamored with that. And I'd always, always saw, you know, like Hanna-Barbera at the end of you know, the credits and stuff, whatever. And uh, um, I kept reading it Hanna-Barbera, you know, and that just like stuck in my head. And I, years later, when I found out the proper way of pronouncing the name, you know, I was just kind of, you know, and I actually had the opportunity many years later when I was a, an adult to actually meet Joe Barbera one-on-one. -on -one. I had a really, really interesting um, meeting with him at one time in my life. And maybe we'll get to that later on tonight, but uh, um, that was one thing, okay? Uh, and then I, I was, I remember Astro Boy. Ooh. I remember Astro Boy. And I started to, I was really caught up with Astro Boy and I was really caught up with uh, drawing the characters. I was, I was like extremely interested in like, the, like Woody Woodpecker's beak. And Astro Boy's like headgear or whatever you want to call that, and uh, and I started drawing that. You know, I just wanted to imitate to, to kind of like emulate that, and it just it was just this thing where I was just like into you know like trying to figure out how the how those shapes work, and um, I was also started drawing at my also when 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 relatives would come over to our house to visit us, they'd always bring coloring books. And I had this knack as a small child of being able to color better than anybody else, you know, like mm -hmm. better than the rest of my sibling, siblings. I had a, I'm, a, I'm come, we had a lot of kids in our family and, um, and I could color between the lines. I could color really evenly. And then that kind of like morphed into when I was in grade school, um, I would draw like kindergarten, first grade, that thing. I would draw, uh, you know, like people with 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 bodies and arms and legs and I was my my teachers started to notice that and um they, they started to bring that attention that I, I had this particular gift to my parents and that went on to our to, to you know our extended family and stuff and and you know I come from a very ethnic it was very ethnic back then you know it still is but you know back then I was just um you know, we, I remember my, my relatives coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, that this is a gift from God and that I, I had this feeling like I was obligated to do something with it. And that's how it started to roll. And then one time, the first time when I never really got a chance to go to movies when I was a child, mm -hmm. I can remember going to movies maybe two times when I was a really small child. And the second time I went to the movies, it was to see Pinocchio. And this was a time when there weren't, there, of course, there were no video recorders. There were no, you know, if you want to see a movie, if you want to see a Disney movie, a Disney feature animated film, you had to either see it when it was at the theaters or you had to wait seven years for it to be released again. So this was the time when Pinocchio came out and I, was, I went to the movies as a kid. I didn't know what to expect. And I saw Pinocchio and I was just absolutely awestruck by it. I was awestruck by it. I, I remember as a child thinking, how can human beings do something like this? And I remember vividly, you know, like uh, the monster of Monstro the Whale 
and uh, other things like Pinocchio turning into a donkey, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it was just, and it was years later, years later, maybe 20 years later uh, or thereabouts when I had an actual chance to see it again. Because at this time I was working at Hallmark, at Hallmark Arts in Kansas City. And uh, they had this thing where they had this deal with Disney where they would, you know, like every couple months, everybody would have, it, you know, they would have, a, they had a small theater there and all the artists could go and see a Disney movie that was on, that they were lent, that they, you know, um, that they let uh, Hallmark screen. And that's when I saw Pinocchio. And that's when I, that was all those years later, I saw it again. And that's when I realized how, how brilliant uh, the thing was. And I just felt, I just felt like the greatest artist in the world, without question, this is how I felt as a child, the greatest artist in the world, without question, go work in animation. And if Leonardo da Vinci and all the other great masters were around in our day and age, that they, they would be working there too. I can so imagine. That's, kind of, that's how all that, just roll all that, that up together. And that's how I started to, uh, that's how I migrated to, uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, like set the course for, set the path for the rest of my life. I mean, to be fair, just that little bit alone, like the story you just weave through there, like you've got some of the biggest influence and some of the best, like, especially of that era, some of the best cartoons and influence of animation like really weaved into your dna like that yeah. i i can only I, some people could probably only dream of having influence like that these days like that that is incredible i was, really, I was actually i was very much influenced by the great by the great masters of the renaissance too i was very much influenced like any kind of art that i was exposed to and i did a lot of uh paint by number sets and stuff mm -hmm. i would like do all the kind of stuff and i remember one time i think i was in the fourth grade and I must have been, I'm, I'm guessing nine years old. And you had, we had uh, like a break, you know, like they, you take a break in the afternoon to draw and stuff. And they had, they came out, you know, those boxes of really fat crayons and newsprint and all that. And so you, they gave us a half hour or so to draw and stuff. And I was getting in there. I was just doing, I was drawing the Lone Ranger and Tonto, which are American. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with them internationally, but the Lone Ranger was like a big thing big western superhero sorts you know and uh and i was uh, I, I remember uh drawing the lone ranger and tonto on their horses like really dramatically like it was very crude because i was a child but i was in that's i drew the desert and all that stuff there's a scene behind them and this girl was watching me she was watching all this activity i was doing then she stood she stood up and looked over my shoulder and she screams god is that good and the entire class the entire class just came and swarmed around me to see what I was doing. And all of a sudden I was the center of attention and I'm looking around, I'm saying like, you know, because I was just, I was a small little kid, you know, Billy right. on me all the time and everything like that. And this time I realized I was the center of attention. Like if this was something I could do that was better than everybody else. So I went home that day and I went to my mother and I said, mom, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. And she goes, what is it? She goes, what is it, son? And I said, I'm going to be an artist. And she goes, oh, that's nice. You patted me on the head. You know? <laughs> and then uh, and that's uh, when I made up my mind. You know, I, I, I never really kind of deviated from that. I just said, I'm going to be an artist when I when I grow up. And that's what happened, you know. So that's oh, a wow. story from childhood. That, that, that's certainly quite the, the story <laughs> starting out more than so, anything else. <laughs> I, I, I assume it was around that point to where, like you said, it kind of just at that moment, like, especially that young, that's what it went from just like a general love for animation and stuff to just a passion and wanting to make it your career. Right. Mm. No, no. Okay. I no, because I didn't, I thought that it was unachievable for me. 
Okay. I thought it was unachievable. I thought it was like so far beyond what I was able to do. That wasn't really something that I, I saw as something that I would actually be able to achieve. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, creating characters. Okay. And I would create characters when I was a child. And I remember uh, Saturday morning cartoons were just absolutely fantastic back then. I mean, I, you, you, we just every we couldn't wait to get up in the morning and watch all the the cartoons that were coming out. And there was you know, and there was cartoons on prime time. I and mean, we had the Flintstones, we had the Jetsons, there was Top Cat. Um, Johnny Quest, you know, all these really great shows, and they were all different. They were all like so much fun. And, and then you, you know, Saturday morning car comes around. You have like, uh, you know, um, man. Uh, let me see if I can remember some of them. You know, like Adamant. You know, and then oh. Space Ghost and uh, Wacky Races and um, Secret Squirrel and all that stuff. And it was just, it was fabulous. It was an absolutely fabulous time to be growing up. And I feel very fortunate because I feel like I grew up during a, I, I know that I grew up during a golden era, you know, uh, in, in many ways. And uh, I never, uh, it never left me. You know, I just, my, my, it was just so much fun. It just, it just never left me. So, and I wound up uh, years later, it was when I was in Kansas city, when I was working at Hallmark and I read a book, um, but and I and, and I and influence animation was a was a tremendous influence on me. I mean, not just as far as just the. Uh, I hope you got a lot of time. <laughs> I got plenty of time. Trust me. The because only let me tell you some stories. I'll say the only thing I'm concerned about is the the remaining meeting time that it says at the top, which I might have to upgrade to pro just to make sure that we don't have that issue. But okay. well, it's gonna it's gonna cut off in 45 minutes. So, but uh, okay, so I'm this is gonna go a lot longer. So I I would say. Uh, if it does, um, I could, I have Zoom. I could always, I could send you an invitation to Zoom and I could set up it, uh, set it up on my end. Okay. okay. That, honestly, okay. that would be, that would be great. Okay. So here's what was happening when I was in Kansas city and I was working at Hallmark and that was an absolutely wonderful experience for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, and I want to explain something to you that this was something, um, no, I was in art. I was, I was in Kansas city when I realized when I made my first, like attempt to get into animation. But before okay. that, I had gone to college for four years as an art major and um, it didn't work out because uh, I went to this particular college because in my high school, there was this guy who was really, really good. He was better than me. And he went to this one particular college and I thought he went there for art. So I followed him, he graduated year before me. And when I got there, I found out that he was a business major and he wasn't there for his art. But I had such a good time there I, it was it was such a like a, a, a absolutely crazy insane hedonistic you know time you know that uh, I just but I did a lot of art but it was just like it was just wasn't it wasn't professional but I was I was it was it was good but I was it was raw and when I when I realized that I could I was taking my portfolio after I had graduated. And I was taking it all to these uh, to these studios in Chicago, you know, like design studios, illustration studios, and they were just telling me like, uh, you still, you, they were saying, sorry, kid, you gotta, you gotta go back to school, you know, you're not ready, you're not, you're not professional. So, so I did, I, I thought about it, and after I had some experiences with um, people who were trying to recruit me for like selling vacuum cleaners door to door, uh, and uh, other thing that was like, you know, I, I really just said to myself, you know, like this is, I'm going to give it one more shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I took my portfolio to, um, I made an appointment with the uh, American Academy of Art in Chicago. Okay. 
it was, it's, I'm sure it's still a great school, but it's really, it was at that time, it was really, really an outstanding school. And I showed all that artwork that I had done in college and I showed it to the president of the school and he was considering ha take, uh, having me skip the first year and uh, going straight into some of these advanced classes like uh, illustration and all that kind of stuff. And he recommended that I start from the beginning because he, he's the first one that told me like, you know, you're, you're really, your work is very, you're talented, but you're raw. And I said, okay. And uh, it was a very difficult time in my life. I'm telling you, man, it was just really, really, you know, one of many episodes in my life where I was extremely challenged. And, uh, but I stuck with it. And uh, that first year in art school was tough because the, my fundamentals teacher, the way that the academy had it set up was they put a, a, an extraordinary emphasis on artistic fundamentals, which was unique at that time. So it, you know, it, it was just if you get your their philosophy was if you get your fundamentals down, then um, you can do anything with it, and that's what I needed. Uh, as opposed, they they were in like an ide ideological battle of sorts with the Art Institute of Chicago, which they had a school which did a lot of you know like non representational stuff and everything like that. So uh, I went there and the guy that I had as my fundamentals teacher was uh, like a, a former drill sergeant from the army. Oh, love and he was really, really, he was a very great watercolor painter, but he was a really, really tough teacher. And man, did he make it tough for me, you know? And it was, it was just, you know, like, but I stuck with it and I got through fundamentals and, and I uh, was able to, and it changed me. And it's like, okay, now I understand what, you know, like composition and design and perspective and all this kind of stuff. And then I went into illustration and from the illustration program, a recruiter from Hallmark Cards came there, came to the school at the end of my uh, second year, I, I spent two years in art school and he, he recruited me and he, I was hired directly into, at Hallmark. And while I was at Hallmark, uh, I, that was a great learning experience. Um, but while I was in school, this is what I, I had a, a, a tremendous ep epiphany. And that was at that time, the great, the, the, the animation cells from Disney, from the great Disney films were being released and sold. And there was a gallery across the street from the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a wonderful world-class museum. And I went to this gallery and I said, I want to, would you kindly show me where the, uh, the, uh, the animation cell exhibit is? And they said, yes, yeah, it was almost disrespectful, you know, not the people that were telling me, it was just where they put it. It was all the way down the hall at the right in the back entrance and stuff. So I went down, there was this little white room with, uh, you know, like right before you, you know, the, the back door. And I went in and I just, my jaw just hit the, hit the floor with a thud. And I saw these beautiful, the original animation cells from Pinocchio oh. and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Lady in the Tramp and all this stuff. And I, it was there, this is it. I could see it, I was there, I was like, and I saw the beauty of the art the beauty of the art, the simplicity, the simple colors, the colored line, all that stuff. And I went back to school and I said to myself, I'm going to develop a completely new way of painting. Because everything back then was very editorial based. And there were these great illustrators that were doing like all these different, you know, like pick out techniques and this and all that kind of stuff. And they would do, they would use something called a lucigraph. And the lucigraph was something that you had to pick your photo or something, you, you had your reference. And then it projected it onto your painting surface and you trace that and all that stuff. And I didn't want, I was very uncomfortable with that because I just wanted to 
you know, I wanted to just draw my own stuff and, you know, without having to be reliant on reference. Right. So I developed this technique called the ultimate animation cell. And what it was is I started painting imaginative things, you know, just imaginative, you know, subjects from, you know, that were character based using this technique of flat colors and, and, and colored line. And it completely changed everything that was going on in, in the illustration program there, which was what they were known for primarily. They were a great school. That, I mean, great, great artists came from that school. And uh, that was, that was the, the, and Hallmark picked up on that and they hired me. And then I went on from there. And then when I was at Hallmark, I read a book called, it was just published. It was called The Illusion of Life. Disney animation, The Illusion of Life by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. And I started, and I read the whole thing from cover to bed. And it's a thick book. You know, I read the whole thing from, and, and, and at the very beginning, they were talking about how Ron Miller, who was the president of Disney at the time, were looking for animation artists that, um, for artists who could animate in the Disney style. And I said, well, I'm, I'm hugely influenced by the Disney style. So what I did was I got a por portfolio together. And I remember uh, uh, getting a sketchbook, getting a blank sketchbook. And just, you know, one of those nice black, you know, like kind of pseudo leather cover ones. And I filled the whole thing up and I would not go to sleep at night if I, if I didn't have at least three pages done and I would take it with me to work. And whenever I had a break, when everybody wasn't looking, I'd start, I'd draw on it. I took my portfolio and I sent it into Disney. Okay. You have to understand something that this was a different era. So we didn't have voicemail. We didn't have answering machines. It was nothing like that. And they got my portfolio and they kept calling me. I gave them my home number, but my home number, you know, they kept calling me um, and I didn't know they were trying to contact me. So <laughs> I was, I, after about a month, I called them and I said, Hey, you know, I, I sent my portfolio. I just was wondering if you got it, all that kind of stuff. And I told them and they knew who I was and they said, and they put me in touch with this fellow by the name of Don Hahn. Okay. And Don Hahn turned out to be, one of Disney's big, big, big guns. He's, 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 he's like an executive producer there now. He's a legendary figure. But at that time, he was like, I get, he was working as a, in some sort of administrative capacity uh, as a, you know, I mean, probably in recruiting or so, I don't really know. And um, he told me that they had been trying to get in touch with me and that they wanted me there in Burbank to uh, start a, a training program. And I said, um, well, um, I can't make it. I mean, you know, there's like a couple of feet of snow on the ground and I can't be there in a week. They wanted me there in a week. And I said, I'm, I'm employed at Hallmark. I can't just pick up and go. It would be, you know, inappropriate to give them such short notice and stuff. So they said, we made arrangements for me to start in the summer, that summer. And okay. uh, so I was just like, oh, man, that was great. I made it into Disney. I made it into a training program at Disney. The thing that I thought I could never do, I was able to, to achieve, you know? And um, so when time, time went by and, you know, I gave my notice, uh, gave my two week notice and I got everything ready. And, and I brought a, uh, I didn't have a car. Uh, I just, cause you could just take the bus or walk wherever you wanted to go there and everything. So I just, uh, I remember buying like a third hand Honda Civic, a little Honda Civic. Um, and I remember having like taken those garbage bag twisties uh, to uh, keep my front license plate on it. Cause the bolts weren't there. And um and I, and I remember uh, packing up my portfolio and um, they shipped it back to me, by the way. So I had I took my portfolio, I packed up my portfolio uh, and I took some clothes and I took my art supplies 
And uh, this is a little hatchback thing. It's just a tiny little four-cylinder car that had almost no power to it. Right. You know, it was it was tough, you know, like it was I'll tell you about that later. And anyway, um, and I took a pot, like a little kettle, you know, to, to boil water. And what I did was uh, I set out from Kansas City to drive out to California. And uh, I was camping out on the way, you know? So I'd okay. like find campsites where you pay like two or $3 for a night. And uh, I would just pitch a tent that I borrowed from my friend, you know? And uh, that's how I went out to California. And I remember I had a couple of, I, I took it, I was taking a test for Don Bluth. I took a Don Bluth and I was gonna hand deliver it when I got to LA. And I took the Northern route to San Francisco and then I went South. And um, I didn't, you know, this is a time before cell phones that nobody knew where I was, you know, they just knew you know, I was out and just, you know, it was just, I was out, out there. And um, I finally got to Los Angeles. And um, when I got there, I got there right at the, right at the beginning of a major strike. Ooh. So the whole industry was shut down. <laughs> I mean, I got there like on the second or third day. And I remember uh, there was like a, a, a hamburger place across the street from Disney. And I remember the one thing, though, that happened at Hallmark, I mean, they just really loved me. And I had a wonderful time there. I did, but it wasn't really, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, it was too fuzzy bunny for me, you know? And they wanted to, uh, if I'd have stayed there, I'd have been a high level executive. I can tell you that right now. They just, they kept giving me raises every couple of months. They really, really liked me. They wanted me to stay. Um, and they kept flying me to, to different business I was like a business I, I, when I first time in California was because Hallmark flew me out there. They flew okay. me there and I met, uh, I was like a VIP with my supervisor. We went to Disney and we got like a, a sneak, uh, a peek at uh, Fox and the Hound, you know, oh, wow. we and then we went to the executive, we had a lunch in the executive lunchroom. And um, that's back when the executive lunchroom, when artists were in the executive lunchroom. Now it's just these corporate farts, you know, and, uh, they, um, the executives, so we're, I saw Ken Anderson there, one of the, one of the, uh, the great artists at Disney who like developed the, the concepts for concept sketches and story sketches for Jungle Book and a whole bunch of stuff, you know? And I was looking at all these, uh, these, these great superstars, these great artists, and I'm sitting there and said, that's him, look at this, you know? And I, was so <laughs> and I, met, I met Stan Lee. We went to Marvel, I met Stan Lee, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like talking to Stan Lee, and I was just flooding him with just just oh man you know i love mar i love mar i learned to draw because i was copying comics all. and he came he came and he came back and he gave me like six books that he authored a stack of six books that he personally autographed to me including how to draw comics the marvel way personally autographed to me by uh, and i started reading it because one of the things that hallmark had me do as a result of that was design a superhero character for for hallmark you know okay and i used this book to teach myself how to draw superheroes and at that but at that time i was working on a, on a disney birthday party set and uh, i met a guy named carson van austin who was uh the disney comic book artist at the time he's he's passed away but he was a great he he was an expert on drawing mickey mouse and he was teaching me how to draw mickey mouse and all this kind of stuff and everything and i just had such a wonderful experience there and um you know, and uh, I wound up, you know, like going to, you know, like following this up and actually, hmm, I think it was like the next year or something, I, that's when I sent my portfolio. So I get into, I get to Burbank and I'm at a hamburger place and I have no, I dropped off my, my test to Don Bluth 
uh, studios and there was nobody there, just a couple people. And I saw, and I'm here, here I am having a hamburger across the street from Disney. And I'm seeing all these people on the picket lines and I'm sitting there and I'm homeless. <laughs> and I'm sitting, I just started laughing. I just remember laughing, like how, how absurd this all, all this was, you know? So I went out to the picket lines. I started asking guys, what's this strike about and all that stuff. And I realized they, they, they're not too friendly, you know, mm. these guys are not, they're kind of snobby, kind of snobby asses, man. You know, I just, I was, I'm, I'm Midwestern friendly. Right. And I was, you know, here I am, I was like being exposed to the culture of Los Angeles, which is something different. And uh, I was kind of like very perturbed by that. But anyway, I just kind of went with it and stuff. And I remember, you know, like walking around striking with them. I didn't have a sign to hold, but it was just kind of, you know, it was just, it was just kind of fun. And uh, so that's how I got, that's how I got out there. That's how I got to California. I was just living in a tent. I was sleeping uh, on the beach. I was sleeping in the desert, you know. And then I'm on my, I found my way to um, San Diego. Okay. And there was a lady there who used to work for Walmart. And uh, she was, uh, you know, I knew her. She had made, she had visited there. And I knew people who knew her at Hallmark. And I, you know, I got to be, uh, you know, like, you know, fairly good acquaintances, you know. And we, and one of the times I, we, they did send me and my supervisors to, to San Diego for a research trip there one year. And um, that's when I first met her face to face. And then she would visit Hallmark because she was still working for them. And she was a brilliant artist. Her name was uh, Patricia Paris, by the way. Okay. She's a lovely, 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 lovely lady. Very, very super talented. The only ha- artist that Hallmark ever hired right out of high, high school. And actually, oh, wow. at that time, two other people they hired out of high school. And I'll tell you about them later if you want to know. Because they, <laughs> they became really good friends of mine. They actually got into animation, too. Okay. So, um, so uh, she, I went, I remembered how to get to her house. And you have to remember, I looked like a com- complete wild vagabond. My hair was long. I was had these, you know, I was just like, I've been, you know, like living, you know, out. I just looked like a beach mom, you know? And I, and I, and I get with my little Honda and I go right, go up to her house. And I go up to her store and I knock on her door. And then she answered the door and I said, hi. And she looks at me and her eyes just popped open and she goes, <laughs> She goes, she literally says, God sent you. And she grabbed me and she pulled me inside and she pushed me up the stairs into her studio and she sat me down and says, get to work. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was doing a project for SeaWorld. She was doing some big project for SeaWorld. She really needed help. So I immediately I had like an interim job, you know, and, um, and and that's where I worked. And they had a guest house. They had a guest room in their house. And that's where I live. And I say I did this for a couple months. And then I'm through her. I met a fellow by the name of David Kirshner. Okay. And David Kirshner became um, the, he's the guy, he, he uh, through him, through him, he, I went there and we went, took a trip to LA. I showed him my portfolio because he wanted to see it. And he, she was working on a project with him. And um, turns out uh, it didn't go very well for her. I mean, it worked out fine, but it was just, it was some, there was some really, funky stuff that went on with uh, that whole situation. And I'm not going to get into it too much because I don't want to berate anybody personally, but it was one of the early exposures I had to Hollywood and where I started to realize that this place is, uh, needs a a good kick in the ass sometimes. So anyway, I went to Hollywood. I mean, I went, we went up to LA and um, 
I showed him my work and he's pulled me to the side. He started talking about a project he wants to do and how much, you know, like how much would I charge him for doing some concept sketches? And I said, you know, well, I'll, I'll do it for $500. You know, that was a lot of money back then. And, um, and uh, he kept, you know, like kind of, I kept hearing from him, you know, like periodically, like, when are you going to get to it? When are you going to get to it? I said, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I, I finally had to leave San Diego because I heard that the strike broke and I went up North to LA and Fortunately, I had some rel some relations there who were, uh, you know, we were uh, close and uh, they let me because the weather was getting bad. And I remember camping out on the beach one day uh, with these two gigantic concrete orbs. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what in the world they were. They looked like just two big, huge, monstrous boobs, you know, <laughs> they had like little things on the top of them. They just looked like boobs. And I said, so I and but the ants got into my tent. And it started eating me up then. I said, and the weather was changing. I said, I have to, I can't keep doing this, you know? So I went up north and I said, it turned out to be a nuclear power plant. And I didn't know oh. that San Onofre, the San Onofre nuclear power plant. And that's when I had to realize I had to kind of, you know, change my, 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 um, my plan. So uh, they let me stay. I slept on the living room of their home and um for a little while and the very next day i got on the phone i started calling up any studio i could find I called up disney the strike was over but it changed the industry entirely the industry was completely different that i could not get in touch with uh with mr han all of a sudden i had these other corporate people that i was kind of you know these secretaries and stuff that i was going through and they were very kind of you know mean and and not very pleasant and rude you know and so i kept calling up uh, these different studios and stuff and i got in touch with one guy who would actually stop and talk to me on the phone and i for you know I, I'm, shame on me for not remembering his name but he was a, a good fellow and he worked at a studio called filmation and oh. i went to so i went to him i said he goes hey look you know we got all of our people are gone we got 80 percent unemployment in the studio we got this, you know, this, it was, the strike was a devastating strike. It was really, really bad. The union got like their asses handed to them, you know? And uh, so I said, look, just look at my work. Just look at my work. That's all I'm asking. Just, just look at my work. I says, okay, uh, come on in tomorrow. This was a Thursday, come on in tomorrow in the morning at this time. So I said, okay. So I went there and I took my work and I met him and he showed my work and then he took me to somebody else and they took me to somebody else. And then they took me to the head of the studio whose name was Lou Scheimer. And uh, I, I laid out my work you know, on, on his, uh, you know, his, um, on his desk there in his office. And he was a very, uh, he was a very good man, Lee Scheimer. And uh, he asked me, he says, are you familiar with what we do? And I said, um, yes. You know, I watched it. There was this cartoon called Black Star that was, uh, they did, they'd done Star Trek. They do a lot of these uh, kind of these, you know, super, super heroish type of stuff, you know, and um so it says, okay, uh, start Monday. We're going to hire you, apprentice layout. Uh, start, be here at 8.30. I said, thank you. So I went across the street and um, it was a payphone there, you know? So I threw in, you know, so I, and the first thing I did was I called my mother and my family. I said, I got it, mom, I made it. I got it. I'm in the industry. I'm in animation. I'm in animation. And I was a big hero. I was in my hometown. I figured I was a big, that was a really special time because I, it was, you know, like what I had gone through and all that stuff and everything. And I made it, I, I got in. And, uh, and that afternoon I had an appointment with somebody who, um, for, with an apartment, 
uh, in Burbank, like right on the border, like across the street was North Hollywood. So I made, I got into Burbank, I had an appointment. And since I had a job, I was able to get this apartment and it all fell together in one day. I got a job in the morning. I got an apartment in the afternoon. And guess what I did on the weekend? What did you do I, on the weekend? I drew on my stomach, on my stomach, on my elbows, in, my, in the living room with no furniture, nothing. I, I drew the concept sketches for this guy that I met through Pat Paris in San Diego, David Kirshner, who was, um, you know, wanted to develop his, I did two really nice layouts for him that have since been lost. I didn't make any copies or anything like that, but I kept the, the concept sketches that I did in one of my sketchbooks. And I delivered it to him. I did it on my hand, on my elbows and my stomach with a floor of my living room. And I did the initial concept sketches for an American tale. Oh my goodness. For, for Steven Spielberg's American tale. That's how it started. <laughs> That's how Five Moskowitz was born. That's how the whole concept for it was born. And I drove to his house and I delivered it and I got 500 bucks. And I thought like, I am in, look at this. I came to LA, I got a job, I'm getting freelance, all this stuff. You know, that's how it started. That's how I got, that's how I got into animation. That last part was, that last part, I didn't see anywhere in my research whatsoever. So that part just like, yeah. wow. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff I never got credit for. There's a lot of stuff that I've done that people aren't aware of, you know? Wow. And, you know, and that kind of that that kind of followed me throughout my career. It wasn't until the internet and social media, you know, okay. that, that people that that I could kind of like get my stories out and people start to realize that, you know, what all the different things that I had done. But that's how that's how it started. And then I then about I don't know maybe it was a month or two later, we were doing see what was going on at that time at Filmation, which isn't around anymore. And the great thing about right. Filmation Studios, the great thing was at that time it was the only studio in America let's say the only studio in Hollywood that was doing animation for television, animation production, all under their roof. Right. Everybody else at that time had been sending their stuff to uh, remote locations like uh, Korea or Japan or something. That was the only place that was still doing it. So when you got a job at, at, at Filmation, you were exposed to everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, camera was there, ink and paint was there, storyboarding was there, the writers were there, everybody was there, everybody was there. So um, you learned a lot, you know, you just learned a lot. And I remember there was hardly anybody there. I was just like, it was just, it was just a handful of people. And how I got in, I think it's because I just sold them on my, I mean, for some, I think, I, th I think I just sold myself. Right. And, um, and they, and I was there and, and I remember um, I had a room to myself, a whole room to myself. And I saw it. Well, and, and I, I thought, well, this is how it was when I was at Hallmark. I had my own personal, you know, like booth and it just little little office area and stuff. Like all the artists, you kind of had personal areas to work in. And I thought this is how it was in animation, you know. So, you know, I'm, I, he was doing something called um, Return to Oz. Oh, no. They had done one season. They did seven episodes of a cartoon called, called Gilligan's Planet, which is based on the 60s show of Gilligan's Island. Right. And he was very upset because... He felt he had been betrayed by the, the networks because the networks, uh, he always bailed out the networks when he needed a show. And now the next the networks had turned their back on him and only given him like a few episodes. He was really very, he felt very betrayed by them. I remember him talking about that in, in my room when we were meeting with other artists and stuff. And, um, and uh, then one day uh, we were doing all this development work, all these, all these ideas. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. 
I'm just throwing all this stuff out and just saying, you know, I just hope I'm doing okay. And then one day this guy comes in and he brings in a box, but yay, yay big, you know, and he brings in this box and it's filled with all these different action figures. What happened was they had done a commercial for this line of toys the year before. And it was very successful. It was like a really, it was unusual for the time because you didn't see that much animation on TV. Like, and they had done like a full anim, fully animated, uh, you know, commercial for these line of toys and stuff. And he pulls out and and, and this and, and these uh, he pulls out these toys and he's you know you get the good guys. He gave it to a lady named Carol Lundberg, and then he took out this other. You get the the bad guys and you get. I think he gave it to a guy named Herb Hazelton. And I was since I was the new kid. He goes, so you're going to get the vehicles. And that was the beginning of He-Man. Right. Animated right. series. That was the beginning of He-Man. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. And I did have an opportunity to design, you know, like characters and all that kind of stuff. But at the beginning, I was doing like the vehicles. And like when He-Man runs up and jumps on the sky sled and takes off all this, I designed. I didn't know. Again, I didn't know what I was doing. And what I had done was I had done such a thorough job with the models of the, of the vehicles. I had done it from every imaginable view top back front three quarter up three quarters down three quarters up all that stuff and they were so impressed with that that they thought that they wanted me to be the vehicle designer for it so i'm not a vehicle designer guys i'm a character guy i'm just looking at a toy in my hand and i'm <laughs> able to design it so i i, I they they eventually uh you know understood and i had to make a little bit of a of a you know of a ruckus i would say and they and then i started to design characters and the very first Characters that were not toys, that were not toys, but were the ones that I, that I designed. I started that whole thing. And at that time, character design was a whole brand new category. It right. didn't exist. It wasn't like an isolated category. It was just either you were like an animator that, that you know, d- designed the characters on the side or a layout artist or a storyboard artist. But it was at the very beginning when character design was starting to emerge as a separate, distinct category. And that's how, that's how I, I got involved uh, with He-Man. You know, right. I stayed on for a while and then I got restless. And, and then before I knew the second person, the, the first person that I shared my office with when they started to uh, hire people was a was a, a young 19 year old artist who was awesome. Amazing. Amazing. I had never seen anybody so good, so young. And he'd be hunched over his drawing table. He's smoking cigarettes and stuff and everything. He's just punching all this stuff out. And we became really good friends, you know. We get, and that artist was Bruce Tim. Oh, oh. oh. You, know, you know Bruce Tim. Bruce Tim <laughs> went on to become a legend on the on Batman. Yeah. And what he was, he just came off of the Secret of Nim, Don Bluth's right. Secret of Nim, and he was telling me all these stories about. There's a scene where some sort of like a cinder block is lowered down or something, and he had to do all these meticulous in-betweens and stuff, like hundreds of in-betweens, because it was such a slow moving, you know, scene. And uh, we talked about, you know, the, that whole thing and stuff, and we became pretty good friends. And then more people started coming in as they started to hire everybody. And before you knew it, there was so, the whole room was jam packed, and I didn't have any room at all. Spoiled <laughs> well, from Hallmark, you know. And here I am, I'm just elbow to elbow with these guys, and I was elbow with this. This fellow, I know where he's He never showered. He never was. His, oh. his body odor was absolutely repulsive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, man, you know, it's just like this is a, this is not what I thought animation would be. And eventually, I had to leave because this is I couldn't do anything like that. But everybody else there was used to it because that's the way that it is. You know, like right. I realized that you work for eight months 
Okay, six, seven, eight months, and then you were laid off, and you had to wait until the spring. You know, when the, when everything started to gear up again, and all that. So I didn't realize that. So I was learning a lot of hard lessons at the time. So I went off, and I was trying different other things on my own. And then I eventually came back um, for the second season of He-Man, and then that's when we also developed Shira. We developed mm-hmm. Shira. I was on the development team for Shira. Did a bunch of characters for that for that show, and then we did Brave Star on, on top of that, which was also kind of a I would say a fairly, I don't know, kind of an ambiguous, you know, it was, it was a, for that time, I don't know. I, I thought, I always thought Brave Star was, it was, it was ambitious at the beginning, but it just kind of got lost to history, I think. Right. And yeah. But that's, uh, that's, you know, that's, I just started. And then I just, I did a lot of other things too. I, I remember um, being hired at, uh, at a studio that it was a startup studio called Deke, you know, D-I-C. Ah, Deke. Doing, um, um, Rainbow Bright, which was a Hallmark project, and Hallmark knew that I was in in Burbank. I was in LA, and you know they, and I got involved with that. And I was they did this this Rainbow Bright movie, which I never saw, and I never got credit for the stuff that I did for that. Oh, and there was something else going on at ABC and in, in uh, television, which is you know a major TV network in LA. And I was doing like a Greek mythology project for that. That nothing ever happened with that. So there's a lot of stuff that I did that's never seen the light. I have an enormous amount of work. That's never been seen. It's never. It's, I haven't even taken a photo of this stuff, and it's like one of the things that I really have to get to because I just have an enormous collection of art that I just haven't been able to, to archive or categorize or anything. But um, that's what that's uh, how my 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 career um, got rolling. Those are the early years of my career. I mean that that's quite a start, if I do say so myself. Like goodness, like having your hands involved in like some of these like incredible cartoons uh like you know you said like you know developing stuff for american tale being a major handway came to he-man and she-ra which to this day is still like some of the most celebrated stuff to this day like i know i tell you i'll tell you nathan i i had no idea every single project that i worked on without exception i had no idea that decades later they would be as popular as they are i i can only imagine i thought i thought he-man was going to be i was going to be it a bomb. I thought a bomb in the sense that it was a bad thing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I thought it was not, I was going to be a failure. I said, who's going to watch this thing? I mean, I, I was used to GI Joe. They could articulate the wrists and the elbows and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. The, big, the big, you know, the big doll from the original GI Joe's and stuff. Right. And it was just like, you know, you move this, you can move him around, you know, stuff. I didn't realize that uh, it was going to be, I just thought, you know, and, and there's like, I just didn't realize it was going to be such a big hit. And it was enormous, you know, at its peak, at its peak, it had almost half, half the viewership of everybody who was watching television in the United States of America at that time. Oh, Lord. It, was, it was, it was enormous. It was, I don't know how long that period lasted, but it was probably in the early days, but. I mean, I knew it was big. I never realized just how it big huge. it was. It was huge. <laughs> it was huge. And every single time uh, at 430, I'm sure it was, I think it came out at 4.30, ended at 5, or it came out at 4.30, ended, and then four, ended at 4.30, 4.30, ended at 5, I don't know. But um, there was one period in my life, one period where I wanted to make sure that, and this is this is especially true with Shira, because at the end of Shira, Lookie would, would appear. The little character of Lookie, I don't know if you're familiar with him, you say had like a raccoon's tail, he's a very colorful yeah. little fish type character. Yeah. They would hide in the scene and he would, put, he would show up and he would tell you the moral of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, Lookie was my character. 
Oh, wow, really? Lucky was absolutely my character. He was my character. So every day, Monday through Friday, I wanted to be sure that I was at a television set somewhere where I could see Lucky (laughs) for the little minute that he was on. And, and and catch my name on the credits and all that kind of stuff and everything because that you know my family was very excited about all that you know and um, so it was a, it was a wonderful it was a wonderful really really a wonderful time but it was troubling as well right. because there were so many things going on in animation at that time that I really found um, infuriating and that manifested itself later on in uh, a lot of crazy things that I did but it turned out to be for the best because. It, you know, the whole toy based thing that was going on in the 80s, you know, you guys don't realize this, but it was extremely stifling and extremely, extremely stifling. We were smothered and there was so much exasperation and frustration with the animation community at that time with the artists and stuff like that. We didn't, you know, it was, you, you, it was, it was fun. We had, it was a wonderful, we had an absolutely loads of fun, but it was just, there was this, it just wasn't right, you know. I just I don't know how to express it or how to describe it, but um, it eventually it ran it ran its course, you know. Right. And it ran its course from a show called The Spiral Zone. Okay. Which is in a very vague, a very obscure series that was aired in, at least in L- in L.A. It aired for a very short period of time, and it aired like at five o'clock in the morning, so nobody saw it. Right. And that was the first time that I was a, an art director was the Spiral Zone. Okay. And um, I put together that crew. Now, that the, the, the Spiral Zone was such an absolutely corrupt production that it really, we were the highest paid crew in all of animation at the time. Yes. I, I, was, I was one of the highest paid artists in animation. And everybody that I put together for that crew were the highest paid crew. We were getting paid close to double what all the other studios were getting. And they were only giving you a five o'clock in the morning time slot for that? Well, that's not, we had nothing to do with that. That was not it. But what I we mean, had to do was, I, I, they interviewed, I heard about that they were paying a lot of money at this one studio and it was right in the, in a real kind of grungy part of Hollywood. All right. So I, I went and I, and I, you know, made an appointment with uh, the producer and I met her and uh, she was, uh, she was a real. <laughs> <laughs> She was, man, she was tough. She was very unpleasant. And um, she she wanted to see my Rolodex. And I said, what does the Rolodex have to do with anything? Then her mind and the mind of all these people who are not animation artists, these guys were primarily known for their live action shows that they've done. done. A good art director has, has a Rolodex. An art director has nothing to do with the art. It's just nothing to do. It's, it's mostly I learned that an art director is simply just somebody who organizes things, who who breaks the script down, okay, makes assignments. These characters here need to be designed. These backgrounds, these props, these vehicles, all that kind of stuff. And um, you know, but I said I went to her and I just said I'm the best art director in town. And I just said it. I don't know if it was true or not. <laughs> just hey, you got you I gotta have, you, so you gotta have that her. confidence. That's that's yeah, what I gets convinced you far. her. To hire me, and it was really there's another guy who was in contention for this didn't get it uh, because I guess he was he was made an impression because he had a big rolodex, you know. Mm-hmm. But I just had a lot of confidence, and I just said, you know, I can put together the best team that you can possibly imagine, you know. And uh, so she said, so they hired me, and um, 
they gave me, I, they put me on the fourth floor of a three-story building. <laughs> it was like 112 or 113 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what it is in what that would be in Australia, but I think like 40, 45 degrees, something like that. You know, it was a shack on top of a roof of this building that they were using to dump old office furniture and boxes and boxes and boxes of scripts. Okay. And I had a white, little white drawing table and a telephone. And they said, you have 24 hours to get a, to get a look down for this show. You have 24 hours to get in with this situation. I said, okay. So I got on the phone and I called up, you know, this, this was a kind of a, a period where they were kind of, there's a little bit of a slowdown in animation at this at this particular time, or you know, there were the, the people that I knew fortunately were available, and I called up uh, Bruce Tim. Bruce, you got start. a job. Are you working? Uh, no. Well, you got a job. Get over here now. <laughs> You're gonna get this much money. No. And I called up uh, Philip Felix, Philip J. Felix, a great okay. artist, great friend of mine who I met. One of the artists that they hired out of high school at Hallmark that I met. He was a very uh, kind of rebellious person like me. I said, Philip. Are you working anywhere? No. Well, you got a job. Get over here now. And I called up, you know, uh, Joe Pearson, you know, just who I eventually did uh, crash with, and all these. And I put together the superstar team, you know, Don, a guy named Don Greer, a guy named uh, one thing I gave a, a real early break, you know, like the first job that Stephen Olds ever had, and he was he was doing like architectural work, and I get, he wasn't one of the ones that I initially contacted. But eventually, you know, it was, I think it was uh, Bruce Tim, Philip Felix, Don Greer. Um, and we just started, you know, we just, we, we just barreled through it. We in this horrendously hot environment with no equipment, all the kind. And we got the most, we got all the pre-production stuff together within a couple of weeks, maybe, you know, I, I know it was two weeks. We sent it all through, over to Korea where they were going to animate, you know, like the opening of the show, or whatever. And we saved the thing and they, and they, and they scored the deal because of what we did. And they scored a 65 half hour episodes of the spiral zone and they got the money. And we went from, from that shabby shack on the roof right. to most elegant high rise uh, offices that you could ever imagine. We were oh, on the wow. 32nd floor. They have, they have lots of sky rises in Westwood now, the Westwood part of LA, which is where UCLA is. And uh, at the time they only had two high rise, like, for, for LA, they would be skyscrapers. And we were on the top floor, 32, 32 stories out. You could see all the way to Catalina Island. You could see the entire shore. You know, it was just like, we could see an unobstructed view. Three, we had floor to ceiling windows, you know? And um, we were just, and we were the highest paid crew in all of LA and we, and we you know, we, we got the, the, whole, the whole spiral zone uh, rolling. And I could make an entire, an entire, um, show about just the spiral zone yeah and i was what we, and what we did and all that kind of stuff and everything and we were we were great we, we we kicked ass and uh but what happened was um you know they gave creative control to the toy company oh. and we were very frustrated they, they they told us at the beginning they wanted to make this like an award-winning series right okay? uh, really and, and then it and we started to get there and these 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 moronic executives are trying to tell us what to make things look like. And we were getting, we were getting faxes from the toy company telling us what to make the every art directing us, telling us what to do. And I went to my, uh, to my crew and I said, um, save all those. 
save every single one of those faxes. And I had a stack by the time I, I, I can only endure it for about six months. A stack like that. Like Goodness. Just like a big stack of, fa of fax communication. And um, what happened was a couple years later, they were having hearings in Washington, D.C. about, about re-regulating advertising on children's television. Because right. it had totally gotten out of hand because it was all being controlled by toy companies. And, the, you know, and of course, you know, you had the lobbyists in Washington who were saying, you know, like, uh, if it wasn't for the toy companies, animation would be dead and all that kind of stuff. And I said, if it wasn't for you guys, we'd be having a we'd be having a, another a second golden age. You know, that Don Bluth was heralding. You know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be out there. Was because I wanted to be where, you know, I wanted to be part of the second golden age, you know. Right. And um uh, so I got in contact with this advocacy group in Washington, and they never knew who I was. We had like a code name for me, and I would get directly to this lady. And she was a very prominent lady who has since passed away. And I told her, I'm going to send you the proof that you need about how intrinsically involved the toy companies are in children's entertainment, because it was basically half hour commercials we were doing, you know. And I sent it to them, and I remember. Um, like this whole argument of chicken of the egg, you know, which came to the that doesn't matter, all that kind of stuff. And I sent it out to them. And the congressman, the, the senator who was overseeing this whole thing, all of a sudden, I, you read it in the trades, you know, like in, in Variety and Hollywood Report, all that kind of stuff said, if the if the entertainment and the motion picture, whatever, association, whatever, if, if they do not voluntarily um, uh, re-regulate children's advertising on children's television, we will do it for you. Oh, and wow. immediately, immediately they shut it all down because they had the proof. And a lot of that proof went into the congressional record. And what happened as a result of that was the Children's Television Act of 1990. You can research that. Mm -hmm. okay? That's what opened the door for Ren and Stimpy, Batman, um, Dexter's Lab, all the golden age cartoons of the 1990s because we got the toy companies out of our way. And it happened because of the spiral zone and the, the, the communication that I sent to prove, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt how, people, how they were directing us. And I'll give you an example of how they were directing us, which is one of the things I really resent about, about Hollywood. I really resent because they pander to the lowest common denominator. They want to make, they, 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 it's like, like making intellectually stimulating content is not, they're not interested in that. Because the toy company told us in their communication there was one character, by the way, Aiden, this was an Australian character that was in there. And he, he fell in a puddle. And he says, and, he, and the line was, I feel like a waterlogged wallaby. Okay, look at me, I feel like a waterlogged wallaby. And the research, the toy said, we did research, we researched that 50% of high school seniors do not know what a wallaby is. Therefore, change it to a waterlogged kangaroo. So why in the world are you catering to the 50% who don't know what a wallaby is as opposed to the ones that do know what a wallaby is? I mean, that half, of them, don't sense. Know, half of them do know, you know? So I'm saying, I'm saying, see, that's how they work. That's how this whole system works. It works, it works to pay, it, it works to make you stupid. It just, you know, I, can, I can work on that. I can talk about that for a very long time. And I know a lot of the stuff that I say, can be controversial and all that kind of stuff. But this comes from my own personal experience from years and years and years right. in, the, in this business, okay? And, and uh, you know, so we were able, because of stuff like that, and so, like, change the label, change the, the logo on his chest, 
on the side of his, excuse me, on his body armor to uh, this logo and all that kind of stuff. And it was all about featuring the toys. And we shut it down and that, and that opened up the 1990s. That opened the 90s. And it happened because of my crew. And it happened because of this mysterious person that would be calling Washington, D.C. and telling him, I'm going to send you something that's going to push this whole thing through for you. That's how I did. That's how I did it. That These is... are all things that nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because <laughs> one thing, I don't have the opportunity to tell people. And that thing is like, you know, really, I don't know, just, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it really, I don't know what kind of a difference it makes, you know, but it, it was, uh, you know, I've always, I've always been fighting, you know, I've always been, I got to animation and I've always been, I've always been a fighter, you know, fighting for, for what I felt was uh, the right thing to do, you know, so. I mean, from everything that you just told us right here and just this little early section, we hadn't even touched the nineties yet, but everything that you've had a hand in in one way or another is absolutely insane. How much you've been a real driving force for animation one way or another, either helping out with major designs or really changing how the industry, how animation changed honestly for the better considering some of the amazing stuff that we got in the nineties. I mean, it's, I didn't even realize oh, they, they a lot of people don't want you to know about me. <laughs> they try to trivialize me. They try. They try to, you know, like all this. They try to, like, like a pharaoh's name, uh, like a disgraced pharaoh. They would go into, you know, they take his cartouche and they would shut, you know, like chisel it off of the walls and stuff like that. His name shall never be, repeat, you know, remembered and repeated. It's something. It became something like that over time. Uh, but um, you know. Um, it did, you know, eventually, you know, like everything that I was saying at this, at this point, I was like, you know, I like to like, look at things like this is the direction things are going. And I like to project that into the future and said, the future is going to be this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't want to hear it, or they didn't think they thought that I was against them when I'm out, look, I'm on your side, you know, but they're so warped and twisted in the way they their, their perspective on things, you know, they're so indoctrinated into, you know, like this one particular way of thinking that, um, you know, it just, uh, you know, and, and, and everything that I said would happen, happened, you know, it's just, it's Absolutely. not, it's not, you know, like it, you don't have to look in their crystal ball. All you have to do is just extrapolate, you know, from that and just project and all that. And you can see the direction that things are going in and uh, it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, so I, I had, I had, I fought a lot of battles. <laughs> I fought a lot of battles in animation and I am still swinging away. How is how is there not how is there not like a documentary series or a podcast series or just a full length documentary just based on that little early bit alone that you just talked right there like that that alone I, I I'm gonna lead the charge at some point to make that a reality because I want to I want people to hear more about this stuff past this podcast because that just sounds like incredible like how much of again how much of a hand you had early on that's insane one way or another uh I was gonna say Aiden you were trying to say something. For a second there, mm. How about the fucking little old wallaby thing. What? Water, I'm I'm just, I mean, like, look at the way that it rolls off your tongue. Water, wall, it water. rolls off the tongue. A waterlogged kangaroo. Yeah, what the yeah, fuck the does that mean? <laughs> that's that's what that's some of the stuff that we that we had to deal with. You know. Have you seen a kangaroo in water? Don't yeah, go near just... it. It's trying to kill you. Those fuckers are terrifying. That's how, you know, that's how it was. You got to remember, this was a long time ago. Uh, and things have changed, I think, in many ways for the better since then. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, been, at least. Uh, yeah, but um, there was so, there was some dark, you know, there was, there was, I, at that time, I had broken away 
I think one of the reasons why um, I've had the, 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 the I don't know, uh, I'm kind of like disenfranchised from what people would consider like the, the mainstream animation community uh, is because I just um, took a, 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 the road less traveled, you know? I wasn't really, I, I just didn't like working at the studios. Uh, there were a lot of things about the studios and the culture of it and all that stuff and everything that I that didn't appeal to me. And what happened was at the, after sp the spiral zone, I, I broke off and I had been de developing, I broke away and I had been developing my own project for quite some time. And I had been pitching this project before the spiral zone. Okay. okay. Before, uh, you know, I've been pitching it actually um, before, you know, like, like in the, in the mid eighties, the very first pitch that I made, I've been developing it for several years. I just, I was intrigued by the idea and it had to do with uh, ironically with a kangaroo, you know, oh. a kangaroo a koala bear team. And, uh, and I saw the trend in the early eighties towards um, like Australian things, you know, just Australia just became something, I always had I always had this uh, the appealing like being out in the middle of nowhere uh, and wandering off into the distant horizon um, was always something that that um, appealed to me and uh, I saw that I, I kind of like saw that with Australia you know this big land was, was like you know almost you know like marginally inhabited and stuff and and I started to see and I started to kind of but it wasn't about Australia I wasn't developing a cartoon about Australia I was developed it was about the, these particular characters and there'd be other characters that would be involved it wasn't about Australia it was just an, an unusual thing and uh, the very first concept that I ever developed was at Hallmark and what Hallmark knew is they realized that I liked to that I like to create characters so what happened was and for about a year there, they had bought three weeks of my time from my department. And um, uh, they had, I had gone to this, I had gone to this uh, one, this one um, new, this new division that had just started called Creative Licensing. Okay. And what they were doing was they had seen the success of Strawberry Shortcake. And Strawberry Shortcake was a cartoon that came out in the very late 70s, I think about 79. And what happened was um, Strawberry Shortcake was a big success. But it was a different because nothing like it had been done at the time because Strawberry Shortcake was created in a corporate environment. It was created by American Greetings, which was a competitor to Hallmark. American Greetings was in Cleveland. And Hallmark saw this and they said to themselves, well, why in the world, you know, should we be licensing like the Pink Panther and the Muppets and Disney characters and all that kind of stuff? We could be creating our own. So I said, oh, so they hired me, you know, to, to develop this concept. And I developed the concept for what would be their first Saturday morning cartoon. But they kept the concept, but they did, they threw out all my characters and they replaced them with a line of greeting cards that they already had, which was, which was very popular. And it was these cute little characters, like insipidly cute characters that had these t-shirts on them. They had messages like, hug me, I'm kissable, you know, all that kind of stuff just is real. You know, it was like, you know, like a, you know, like a card that you send for your, to your grandma, you know? Right. Or, you know, like a, or, you know, like a, you know, just that kind of thing. And uh, that turned out to be um, Shirt Tales. Okay. Which was a cartoon that aired on NBC for at least one season, like about 80, 84, I'm saying, 83, 84, 85 in that period. And Shirt Tales was my idea. The whole thing, my idea was come up with a, gr with a group of characters that, was a, that would be an adventure team. That would live underneath the white. That had headquarters underneath the White House, 
And whenever the president needed the character, needed needed extra help, these characters would come out and and and, and take care of the situation for him. You know, so they replaced my characters with these other, you know, like greeting card characters, like a little opossum, a little, I know, like a little tiger cub, and all this kind of stuff. And that became that became shirt tails. Okay. And you can see it if you watch Shirt Tales, I'll say created by Hallmark Cards on it. And that's how the, that's how the, another thing that I never got credit for. It shows yeah. you how you know, I had I had my fingers in lots of stuff that was going on back then. Again, unknowingly, I didn't really know that anything was going to happen. I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time consistently, you know. And um, uh, so I, I there were some characters that I had in my back of my head around this time. And I just said, you know, I, I'm not willing to give up on this. You know, I'm just I think there's something here. So I started to work and I started to kind of explore, you know, how can, what can, what can their relationship be? How can this whole thing? And I, by the time um, of February, 1986, okay. um, I had, I had uh, had enough material. I had done big panels, gigantic panels, you know, this is the way that pitching was done at the beginning. This is the very beginning of pitching to the networks, the very beginning of pitching. But that, before this, it was just, you know, like the studios went in and they worked with this, with the networks and they just came up with shows, but, there was a guy there named Phil Mendez and Phil Mendez created a show called Kissy Fur, which is also on NBC. And um, he was an inspiration to me. He, first of all, he was a great artist. And I was really so, well, if, if, if Phil Mendez can do it, the way, you know, everybody else, we can do it. So I put together this elaborate, elaborate presentation with beautiful paintings and big, just character model panels and all this stuff. And it took two people, three people, including myself to take it into NBC. And, uh, you know, Philip was one, was, was one of the artists that was with me, Philip Felix, and um, right. went in and we met with the vice president of children's programming at NBC. And we came, she had like an entourage of three people and it was in a, in a big conference room and stuff. And my goodness, man, you know, I, I swear, if, if, I, if I met somebody at, at, in, in the networks or in the studio, you know, like the networks and all this stuff, who was actually like marginally pleasant, it would have changed the course of my life and my career. But these people are just, you know, it was like they go to school to take like advanced courses on how to be, how to be mean, you know, how to be mean, how to be just, just, just so unpleasant, just, just, and I'm looking at this lady, I'm saying, where are you, where the hell are you coming from? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, and I, and I actually started like to lock horns with her. Okay. And she was telling me, she was like looking at her watch, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and her, her, her assistants were all fidgeting because they saw this artwork that it was just like, they were just blown away by the artwork, but she was just trying to play it real cool and all that kind of stuff. And you have to understand, this is some of my early experience with executives. Right. Which, which right. transpired into like a, a, like a complete disdain for them later on. And I can elaborate on that if you want, you know, because I think it's a major, major, major problem a major problem, certainly in Hollywood, certainly oh, yeah. in the nation, and I think in, in in American industry overall. You know that from what I hear from other people, not from my from my personal experience, I can tell you that is a major major problem. At that, that time, it was a major, and it still is. As far as I mean, I'm, I'll say, I mean, to be fair, that's why we currently there's so many different strikes in so many different industries, especially the the actors strike right now. Dude, they, they suck. suck. I was gonna say like the fact that absolutely in the animation industry, I don't know of any single person I've ever worked with who I looked at and said, I could do a better job than you if you would just shut up and get out of the way. You know, you have no business doing this. You have really no business in the position that you're at. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're talking about. 
And this is over and over and over and over again. I don't know one person that I ever worked with. I could I look at and say, yeah, this guy is like really knows the stuff. Maybe they're there. I'm not saying that they're not. I just have never met them, you know? So in any case, in any case, I took this thing and I'm like, you know, we're, and she's saying, and she's going to me and she's saying, uh, you know, uh, t- you know, why should I get, why should I, why should I uh, give you, why should I, cl- you know, like um, pick up your show? When I have people coming in here with, uh, I think it was either 14 or $16 million to back their shows up. And I stopped and I said, oh, that's how it works. That's how it works. You're bribed. They bribe you. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they're talking about, we can back it up with $14 million and marketing and advertising. We can produce it. We got all that kind of stuff, you know, but I said, so this is, this is, this is how it works, you know? And she says, go out and you need to, you know, sell this, you make a toy out of it, sell it, you know, go into publishing, do something with it. In other words, it's what, what this is all about folks is this is what's called, you must at that, if you want to sell to these people, it has to be what's called a pre-sold concept. You have to go out there and you have to like make it popular and make it a hit basically on your own and then and, and, and develop an audience and then they'll be interested. OK, but I didn't know, you know, I'm saying, did the Bar- Hanna-Barbera do that? You know, did Hanna-Barbera do that with Magilla Gorilla? Did Hanna-Barbera, you know, did, you know, just it's just, you know, so in any case, I looked at her, and I said, and I got really, really adamant and I said, this is going to be a film. And they went, the room was silent. And she and, and she goes, uh, and I said, is there anything else? And they went, no. I said, well, then you can go. And I dismissed them from their own meeting in their own meeting room. And they left. And I told, I don't know what was going on with my head at that time. If I go, went back in time, I certainly would do it the way that I did. Uh, and then I realized something. I realized, you know what? They got microphone, little tiny microphones hanging from the ceiling. And you know, back over there against the wall, behind that smoke, those smoke, little smoke windows, they have cameras. They're recording this whole thing. They're recording this whole thing. So we went around the microphones and we left them, we left them some pretty juicy messages, you know? <laughs> uh, and then we picked up and I left and I just, and I would start to pitch, I would pitch to, I pitched to everybody. I pitched to everybody. I pitched to everybody. I pitched to, the second person I pitched to was a writer at an animation studio that, uh, I'm not going to mention this name or the studio, but I know that they that they were doing that he they were the the studio that did Disney's overseas production. Okay, and um, and I was and my whole con- the whole concept was look you, we can do you do an adventure series with these animal based characters and it's going to be a syndicated thing you know just like He Man all that kind of stuff what we do with the adventure series anime and it's all this you know very imaginative and all this kind of stuff and everything. And uh, I remember him telling me, well, you're going to need more than pretty pictures for this, you know, and he was basically saying like, you know, you, you the, we're, we're the writers and we, you know, it's, we, we're like the dominant, you know, we dominate, you know, and he was hostile too, you know, I was very nice to all these people. It's not, and I went, I pitched it to everybody, to everybody. And a, a couple years later, a couple years later, um, here comes uh, DuckTales. And here comes uh, Rescue Rangers, and here comes uh, here comes uh, Darkwing Duck, now, all this kind of stuff. It was it was a completely new genre. If you look at what's happening in animation at that time, this was a completely new genre. And I'm not accusing anybody of like you know like like um, ripping me off or anything like that. All I'm saying is the idea, the seed for that, the seed for it was planted. I know. It was planted by the fact that I was going around and sharing this idea and showing my artwork and all the kind of stuff. And everything that I was talking about morphed into this whole new way of this whole new genre 
of, of animated content for television, you know, at the time. And by the way, by the way, guess what? A couple years after that presentation, NBC, guess what shows up in, a, in, a, in an episode of Kissyford? What shows up in an episode? And a character identical to the lead character of my of my project. Uh, and you know what they said? You know what they said? What? It's not a kangaroo. It's a wallaby. <laughs> oh my! So the my, tables have turned. So I got my lawyer on it, and we really we settled some things. And they, I, they, I got them to sign a contract that they were ever going to do a cartoon with a kangaroo or a wallaby, that they have to give me ninety days notice so that I can prepare a lawsuit against them. Okay, that's what that's how everything transpired with uh, with NBC. And again, a lot of this stuff you people people don't know because it's just you know hidden hidden in you know hidden in the in a dark corner somewhere you know. Goodness. But this is, you know this is uh if you want to know about my my career and my history and all that kind of stuff, these are the things that I experienced. This is everything that I a lot of the things that I did that nobody knows, you know. So uh, so I went there and I start, I, I started to develop this thing on my own and I had some really bad experiences. I got involved with the wrong people. Man, I went through, so I, I thought, and, and this is, folks, you got to understand something. This is one of the reasons why I am so enthusiastic about what's happening today. Because if the technology and the resources that are available to, to us today were available back then, I would have never wasted my time. Right. I would have never wasted my time, like, like uh, you know, uh, offering, you know, starting a company, incorporating a company, and then offering stock in the company to investors and all this kind of stuff to get the money to do my project. And then the people that were raising the money, the management company, the investment company was doing this, wound up running off with all the money. Okay. So I was going, I went through, I went through some like major embezzlements and stuff. And that left me like totally, totally, um, man, you know, like down and out boy, you know, and, and, and this is how, this is how I started. This is how the nineties started for me. <laughs> this is how the nineties started for me. Like, you know, like looking for a couple of nickels to rub together so that I could, you know, like buy uh, some dog biscuits for my dog and some tuna, a can of tuna, you know, to eat, all that kind of stuff. And it was just, it was a very, very rugged time. It was a very rugged, uh, I almost went, I almost had to go back to my days living in a tent, you know, but um, it was a very typical time. And a lot of my friends, a lot of the people that I brought into the business, that I brought into the industry, into the business, uh, turned their backs on me, you know, um, and I had like, no, I, you know, like I found out who, who my friends really were at this time. And you know who my friends were? Who were your friends? My friends were the Burbank locals. The friends that I had made, the town, the town guys, the town people that I had met, who I had gotten very close with. And they're the ones that got me through it. It wasn't the animation community that got me through it. It wasn't my, it wasn't my friends. I know that I had, you know, the, 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 the sympathy, uh, supposedly, I guess, you know, I had, Maybe some of them were empathetic and stuff, but I certainly wasn't get didn't get any any anything. And then and then you know slowly things started to break, and I got a little bit got a little bit you know work here and there and stuff. And you know, but it was humiliating, and it was a really really I mean difficult, extremely extremely difficult time for me. I mean, not just you know um, materially and physically, just mentally. You know, it was just a very very tough thing to go through. Right. And uh, that's about that time, you know, because I was going, I was, I had to become a lawyer overnight. I had to become an accountant overnight. And I went after these guys. I went after these guys, you know, and I, and I, and I realized I, I've learned something from my investigations and stuff. Um, what happened was I had, a, I had a, a relative who was in law school 
<laughs> and they had, they had, there's a certain kind of couple of programs that you can get for, and I had just started on the internet. I got real, real early on the internet. So what happened was I got his, he gave me his password to, to access uh, this certain data uh, program that was accessible only to attorneys. And I found out that these guys that I was dealing with were, were a suspended corporation. You know what that means? What does that mean? It means that every contract that you sign with them is null and void. Oh. And that the pro the prop the ownership of my property, every everything, it all came back to me. And and I was able to partially fund that project. And I spent the 90s as much as I could. I spent the 90s. And every little chance I get, every window I could, I'd get a little break from work. I come from work and a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And it took me eight and a half years. And I finished the animated pilot. I mean, and nobody's seen it yet. I mean, that that's. And that's, let me tell you something else. The reason okay. why I was able to finish, I'm sorry for going off like this. No, no, just, no, 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 please. Yeah, I, this is my you don't understand how much I love okay. hearing about this. So okay. go on, go on. Okay. And this is how I did it. I did it because uh, I think it was 1993, February of 1993. And I had, I had salvaged the, some of my equipment. The, we, the, 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 the idiot I was partners with we, we got ourselves, you know, we got ourselves, we were in a building in Burbank, with, which was supposed to be a production facility. We were only there for like a month and we signed a five-year lease on it. <laughs> and I had, I had to abandon that building after months. So I, it, I would like hold on to some drawing tables. I, I, I held on to the, the Xerox machine. I hear a lot, I did a few things. And a friend of mine uh, had a little, like a storefront space in North Hollywood. And I moved everything in there, like I just banned it overnight, just moved everything in there, just and I just got settled and I kept I kept on going on, I kept going. And we had uh, we were, I was able to record the voices and all this kind of stuff, everything. And then I heard about this this uh, computer animation system. And I thought at the time that you know they're making you know cartoons with computers, they're colorizing them with computers. And I thought when I was first hearing about this. I thought that it was some sort of a of a of a like a conveyor belt system where you had you had the, the like the animation cells mm -hmm. that that the, the these with the line the Xerox line that and, and it was I, I I saw this in my mind that, that a like a needle came down and touched it and like filled up automatically filled up the animation cells and stuff I thought that's what the, what you know they were using computers to physically color uh, animation cells right. And I went to, they heard about this animation program. So I went down the street to a video store. Like it, it, they had like a video cameras and stuff like security cameras and everything. And it was just down the street, a few blocks in Burbank. So I walked down there and I went in and said, I want to see, I'd like to see the uh, computer animation system that you've got. And I said, okay, come over here. And there was a little 486. I don't know if you, that, that might, I'm sure that's before your time. What? Yeah. <laughs> it was a little 486 with like 66 uh, megahertz. Okay. Um, you know, it was uh, it was basically a word processing back when computers were used primarily for word processing, mm -hmm. and um, and they had this program there called AXA, which isn't okay. around anymore. And I said, and I and I don't know, have you you may have heard of uh, a show from the '90s called The Nanny? Yes, a, The Nanny. It had a little animated opening for The Nanny. Right. That's what they used for The Nanny, and they oh, showed wow. this, this program, and I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? what you know like you have to understand something if you wanted to make animation at that time you had to 
take your drawings to a Xerox service that was, you know, like photocopy them onto an animation cell and take those cells to an ink and paint service where they would color the ink using cell vinyls, paints and all that kind of stuff, you know, put on a white glove and paint all between the lines and all that stuff. And then that would go to a multiplane camera. And a multiplane camera was high technology. And it was, you needed like a, at least a two story building for it to, you know, and you had like six layers of animation, you know, right. just, and it was very complex about, you know, getting, you know, just getting all that kind of, you know, like this layer moving faster than this layer, all that stuff. And this had, not only did it have, did it automatically color, you know, your, your cells, you know, you, you scanned the drawing, you brought it into the, to, the to, to an exposure seat, an exposure sheet. It had independent camera movement on each one and it had 100 levels, Goodness. 100 levels of animation. And I was looking at this and I said, I saw the future. I right. saw the future. And I went to all my friends and I went to everybody that I knew and I was jumping up and down and I was saying, everything that you know about animation is going to change. Absolutely everything, everything. Where you can make animation, you can, people can make, make animated films in, in their living rooms, in the corner of their bedroom, it's that they're gonna be making it in your apartment. You have seen nothing like, it's amazing. It's amazing, it's gonna change everything. And they all thought I was a lunatic. You know, they all thought, <laughs> oh, it's Charles again, going off on his little thing, you know, whatever. You know, just going off on stuff. Cause uh, I can be, I can be kind of animated myself at times, you know, I admit it, but, um, but a year later, all those, all those places were out of business. Oh, wow. Out of the, 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 the uh, ink and paint, services were mostly gone uh, the multiplane camera guys were, were gone they were just the xerox places were gone and there was two programs there were three programs that were they're using about that time there was axa there was one called animo which is like a, like a high-end thing and there was another one called us animation okay which i think i think i think turned into toon boom okay I think that was like the mother company that eventually turned into toon boom i'm not sure but that's what was happening at the time. So I go in and I made that investment in computers and they, everyone was trying to tech me, send this to Japan, send this all that kind of stuff. I said, no, this isn't the way to do it. I know they're going to screw it up. I know this isn't the way to do it. You know, this is, the, let's go this. We will be, we'll be pioneers. We'll be pioneers. We can do this. We can do that here. We can do it with the people that are here. But the guys I was working with were the, were the old model. You know, they was like, well, I'm an executive. I'm an animation executive because I have connections to an overseas studio. And that makes me an animation executive, you know, that's the way that they go. That's the way that's, that's the way that, that it is. And I just said, well, you know, I, I have no use for you. I just, you know, this isn't the way I'm going to go. And I really had a hard time with this because I, it was another episode where everybody kind of, you know, scattered, you know, and, um, but, but I did, was able to hold on to a little bit of the money that, um, that um, they stole, you know, and, uh, you know, and I was able to use that over a period of time. And by the time I was getting to the end of it, I had animated the whole thing by myself. I mean, I did the whole thing by myself. I had in between it by myself, you know, oh, I was scanning it by myself. And I had a little, I had a 90 megahertz Pentium with, a, with an astonishing one gigabyte hard drive. <laughs> it was, a, it was like, you know, astonishing. And, 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 and I think I had 16 megabytes of RAM and it cost me a thousand dollars to buy 32 extra megabytes. Of RAM, I got it up to, to 48, and I had no way. I didn't know how to back this stuff up. I had nothing like that, and I did. I just, but I kept going. I kept going. I kept going. I kept going, and uh, eventually, after eight and a half years, 
I had it done. And you will never believe the day that I finished it. When was the day that you finished it? September 10th, 2001. Oh my, what? Oh, had the, had, had the Betamax, in, did the digibators, whatever they call it, in my hand. And I was ready to conquer the world. And I get up the next day and I just saw what was going on. I just said, well, so much for that. You know, this isn't the time for it. I have to, I'm, I'm too, I, I don't know how to put it. It's like, it's not the time for it. I have to, right. the time has to be right for it, you know? But I kept working on it, kept developing it. I just, kept, I kept at it no matter what. But what happened was when I got to the, when I, when I, re, when I started my school, the reason I started my school was mm -hmm. to finish that film, was to finish okay. that episode. And what happened was I had, an, after about six months, I had enough people skilled enough and I had taken some of that money and I started a paid internship program for my students. And we, and they, we, they had, they did like the, some of the last in, in between that had to be done. And I finished it after that, I finished it pretty yeah. quick. And yeah. every single one, every single one of the students that worked on that, that worked on that made it into the industry. Because Good. we got around a catch 22 and the catch 22 was that you can't get into, into animation unless you have production experience. This is, well, how can you get production experience? Well, you have to get into animation. So I said, well, you're going to have production experience working on this thing. And that's how we got around it, you know? So, uh, and then I finished it. And that's how that's how the Animation Academy was born. And th by that time, it was late 90s. It was like, mm, I think, 98. And, uh, you know, and I had done enough to, and, and then, as I said, I finished it in 2001. So that's uh, how I spent the 90s, on my, on, aside from Crash and, and Spyro. And the other things that I had right. uh, that I had done. So. Right, absolutely. I mean, goodness, like talk about like all the different times you talk about. Talk about either being the right place at the right time or the worst place at the worst time when it comes to your stuff. Like that, that there's is no absolutely insane. There's, there's no, in, there's no in betweens whatsoever. So hey, sorry to pop in here real quickly. Um, as you could probably tell from the way the conversation is going, we're near the end of part one, and there's still a lot of conversation to go. And there was no way I was going to be able to fit this on one single feed for the audio audiences. So, if you're listening to this on audio, this is the nearing the end of part one. There's still a complete other half of the conversation. Just look in your feed. It should be there. Um, it's seriously a great conversation. We really get into some of the more like heavy-handed stuff that you might know Charles for in the second half of the conversation. So... Hopefully, if you enjoyed the first half of this conversation, you'll stick around, listen to part two, and uh, yeah, I'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening to this part. See you in part two.